For today, we're back here in 1 Timothy 6, and let's read 17, 18, and 19 again and get this piece of instruction that's given to rich people and meant to teach us how to manage our wealth. Verse number 17 says, charge them that are rich in this world. So once again, if no one thinks they're rich, this does us no good. And we've talked about we are actually rich as modern day middle class or middle class uh, first world Americans we are actually rich. And I understand there's someone that's richer than you. Okay, there's always an er. There's always someone richer, taller, faster, handsomer. I know handsomer is not a word, but there's always someone that's that. It doesn't change or, or negate the fact that you actually are rich. So compared to the rest of the world right now and compared to the rest of the world historically, you are. So charge those that are rich in this world. And here's two negative things. Don't do this. So don't be high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. So beware of the pitfalls of your wealth. You're going to be prone to be arrogant. You're going to be prone to migrate your hope and your trust towards your wealth and away from God. So don't do that. Those are the pitfalls. But do this. Trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. And that's really the truth that I want to hone in on today, that it's God who gives to us richly all things to enjoy. So not guilt that we have money, but gratitude that we have money towards the Lord. And here's what else we should do because we're rich. That they would do good. That they would be rich in good works. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate, or you could say to share. So literally, those that have wealth should do more and should give more. That's, that's the sum total of this. That it should propel us to leverage all that God's given to us. To leverage that to do more for God and to actually give more to God. Verse number 19 that we'll hit here in two weeks. Laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. So there are core thought processes from this text here that you see. That need to be in place in your mind, in your heart, in your life to be able to actually manage wealth and manage the money that God's given to you, there are core thought processes that you need to have. So you need to understand that you are rich, that you do have money, that there are things at your disposal that most of the world does not have, that we're able to give $40,000 to go build a building in, in Vanuatu. We are rich. You need to know that. You need to have generosity as a goal because of that, that you should be propelled into doing more, into literally giving more and being generous. So that's, you need to understand that that's, my money is not for me. It's to advance God's kingdom. And I want to, I want to be rich toward God. I want to be generous. But there are two more core truths. And there's more than that in the Bible for sure. But we're going to cut it after two. There's two more that I want to give to you over the next couple sermons. One of them being today. And it's a core truth that you need to wrap your head around when it comes to managing all that God has entrusted to you. I would call it the stewardship principle. So today I have one point and one point only. I have one core takeaway, and I just want us to center on this. So here is the stewardship principle. Your money isn't really your money. Now, I know that sounds threatening. I know that's not the greatest news in the world. But the stewardship principle, if I could put it in a terse way, is simply this. Your money and all that you've been given really isn't your money to begin with. Let me, as I studied over the last uh, couple weeks, I came across <clears throat> a story about George B. McClellan, and I felt it was a fitting window into the stewardship principle. I want to share it with you this morning. The Civil War in April of 1861 broke out, and it quickly began to take a toll on the nation as a whole. 
And Lincoln realized that he needed to assemble a massive army, so he began to do just that. And he began to amass the Army of the Potomac, and he selected as the general and the commander of that army George B. McClellan. It was written of a contemporary of McClellan, and he was described in this way. They said that he was the impersonation of health and strength, a man with a faultless uniform whose faith is full of intelligence, of willpower, of self-assertion, a born leader of men. Lincoln was responsible for amassing the army, but McClellan was responsible for taking these volunteers and these really civilians and turning them into trained soldiers and turn them into trained soldiers. McClellan did. It seemed as though with McClellan at the helm, the North was finally going to bring its A game several months into the Civil War and get the job done. And it was even written of McClellan and his army. It was actually recorded by Julia Ward Howe. She went and she watched them train and do drills. And she went back to her lodging place after watching them train. And she actually wrote the hymn that many of you have sung in church growing up, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And that's how impressive McClellan and his army was, that this man could take volunteers and just civilians and turn them into this iron-forged legion of men that evoked images of the army of God. McClellan was a man who was deeply respected, and the North had a major advantage, not just because they had McClellan, but their army outnumbered the South three to one. And it was generally thought that the sooner the North attacked, the quicker the war would be over, and they could get this over in a hurry, and it would just be done with, with minimal damage. And McClellan, though, he was in no hurry. He took over the army and and began through the spring of, of 1861, and then into the summer, July and August, McClellan bided his time, and he attended meetings, and he sent scouts out trying to get some information. At first, it was thought that this was wise, and this was prudent. He was being careful and being tactful in how he went about his business, but quickly, August turned to September, and September to October, and October to November, and November to December, and McClellan just continued to request from Lincoln more supplies, more troops, more men, more uh, artillery. He, j- he wanted more. And December turned to January, January to February, February to March, March to April. And finally in April, after months of people bidding and prompting McClellan to engage the enemy, finally in April he began a series of kind of timid campaigns where he would send a portion of the army to fight in this battle or that battle, but he refused to relinquish the full force of the Army of the Potomac to get the job done, and Lincoln grew frustrated. Finally, in the summer of 1862, Lincoln decided that he was going to pay McClellan a visit, and he took with him the Illinois Secretary of State, Ozias Hatch, and Hatch actually records in vivid detail what happened during this visit, and Lincoln went, and it was early one morning, they were there in the camp, and Hatch woke up to Lincoln standing over him, and Lincoln said, Hatch, take a walk with me. It was still dark, the the army was still sleeping, and they walked to a tree line, and there they just stood and watched as the army began to come to life, and the fires began to blaze afresh, and, and the men began to wake up. After standing there for a period of time, Lincoln looked at Hatch, and he asked Hatch, Hatch, what do you see? And Hatch was a bit confused by the question, and he said, Mr. President, I see the Army of the Potomac. And Lincoln looked back at Hatch, and he said, no, Hatch, This is General McClellan's personal bodyguard. And according to Hatch, not another word was said. They walked away, they packed up their stuff, they left, and shortly thereafter, McClellan was removed as general of the Army of the Potomac, 
And we know the rest as history that the North ended up getting the job done, and thankfully they did, that now we have the United States of America that we know today. McClellan, in many respects, was a model general, but there was one thing that he lacked. He had embraced a false assumption about the army he led, and he had assumed that the army was his army. And as a result, McClellan concerned himself with many things, good things, noble things, but he never quite got around to engaging his army with the enemy. McClellan was a man who had more than he needed, and he had more than most generals, frankly, would have ever dreamed about to have at their disposal. But he never quite saw it as enough. He always wanted more. McClellan is someone who's not altogether different from what I believe most first world Christian Americans are. We have more than the rest of the world currently and historically, frankly, could ever dream about. We have all of our needs met and we take care of our wants and that's what we by and large spend our money on. And as a result of having all that but never quite seeing it as enough and always wanting more and refusing to say that all of this is God's and he owns it, the stewardship principle, but assuming that it's for ourselves and our own consumption and that it's our money and our assets, we, we operate as McClellan did. We concern ourselves with many things, but we never quite get around to fully engaging our finances or our time or our resources in the battle and engaging it in gospel a collision, fighting and facing the enemy. And we, we sure, we're generous at times. We, we maybe give a little here. We stick our toe in the water here, and we engage our finances in some ways. And we tell ourselves this lie that if I have more, and once I have a, a sure foundation, and I feel more stable, and, and all those, that, those debts are paid, and all this is taken care of, then I'll engage the enemy. Then I'll get around to it. Then I will deploy my little dollar soldiers for the advancement of the kingdom of God. But truthfully, we're, we're telling ourselves a lie that McClellan told himself, and we never will if we refuse to see our money as God's money. If we tell ourselves that what is ours truly is just that it's ours, then we embrace a faulty assumption that will lead us to some, really some negative behaviors and effects in our Christian life. And McClellan was a man who said, this was mine, this is my own, and negative results happened. And if we disregard the stewardship principle and don't understand and wrap our minds around this simple thought that what is ours isn't really ours, it's really from God and it belongs to him and it's on loan to us, the negative results will creep their way into our lives as well. Howard Dayton said it this way, and it's a simple five-word way to say this, what I possess, God owns. And that is, that is an accurate biblical truth. That's, that's good advice for you. That's what you should tell your heart, not just because Howard Dayton said it, but this is what the Bible says over and over and over again. And I want to go to a passage of Scripture that illustrates this and gives us a window into the stewardship principle so beautifully and so perfectly crystal clear. I want you to see it with me. So if you would, turn to 1 Chronicles 29 in your Bible, maybe on your, your handout there in the bulletin. We'll put it on the screen if you don't have either. But just to give some context to 1 Chronicles 29, David is king of Israel, and this, this a particular passage is about King David. David has had a roller coaster ride to get to this point in his life as a king, and he has been through a lot. 
He's been a shepherd boy. He's defeated Goliath. He's worked for Saul. Saul has become crazy. Saul has tried to kill him. David has gone on the run. He's lived in caves, and he's fought for his life. David has become king. And during his kingship, David has fought the enemy. He has won many battles. Uh, The enemies at this point in time in his life are altogether gone pretty much. David is a man who now is living in, in pretty much peace. He has assembled some wealth for the nation and for himself. And truthfully, this point in time in David's life isn't too far removed from how we live as modern Americans, that by and large, we really do live like kings and queens. We have all of our needs met. Everything is taken care of. We have some stress factors, and we have some worries, and the insurance, uh, they're, they're really annoying, and i got to fight with them. We have that, but by and large, we're, we're taken care of, and we're spoiled. And this is David here, and David saw the work of God. Specifically, he saw the house of God. And he saw that the house of God was nothing more than a portable tent. It was the tabernacle, something that was collapsible. They carried it around. It was just a big tent where they would go and do their sacrifices, and they would, uh, the, the priest would minister. And David had a desire in his heart to give God a permanent building. He wanted God to have an edifice that he could call his own, that, he, that wasn't a portable tent. It was something that was amazing. So David began to lay out the architecture and the plans for and to assemble money for building what was known in the ancient world as Solomon's Temple, actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So David begins this process of getting money to make this happen, and David allocates a ton of money from the national treasury. David actually gives of his own wealth. If you look what David gives, scholars believe, if you put it in modern terms, that David gives upwards of $14 billion to this project to make Solomon's temple happen. And he assembles the people together, and he tells the people, here's what we're doing. Get excited about it. We're going to give to God. And the people begin to get excited about it. They begin to attach their heart to giving, and they begin to be generous, and they're, they're willingly generous. And in the middle of this campaign and, and money pouring in for this temple, David takes a time out, and he does this prayer in front of the children of Israel to give us and them a window into the stewardship principle. And that's what I want us to read. I want us to read this prayer from the heart of David to God. And what he says about our finances and our wealth and our resources, if you look at verse number 10 of 1 Chronicles chapter number 29, the Bible says, Wherefore, David, bless the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Here's David reflecting back on all that God has done and all that God has brought them through. And David says, God, this is all about you. Here is the king bowing down humbly before the king of kings, saying, this is about you. This is not about me. I take a posture of humility and say, God, this is all about you. He continues midway through verse 11. For all that is in heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above it. As far as David is concerned, everything belongs to God. All of the silver, all of the gold, all of the treasury, the people that were giving it, all of it belonged to God. He says, Lord, all of this is yours. Verse number 12, both riches and honor come from thee. And thou reignest over all, and in thine hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great, to give strength unto all. So David says, look, Lord, not only does material wealth come from you, but the immaterial comes from you. 
God, I understand that honor comes from you and strength comes from you and power comes from you and promotion comes from you that, Lord, I get to all of this, immaterial and material, is from you. And, Lord, you've enabled all of these accomplishments. You've won all the battles. You have anything that's come to fruition in my life is from your hand, Lord. And this is, this is true for David. This is true for us. This is true for the people of the world right now. But think about for a moment how this may have looked to David's onlookers. Here's the king bowing down before God and saying, it's all from you. You did it all. I give you all the glory. And it could have been very natural for someone sitting there to sit and think, well, David, didn't you have a part to play in this man? Like you had to go through some really tough times here. You've been betrayed by familiar friends. You've been stabbed in the back. You've had your own family turn against you. You have fought battles. You valiantly put your life on the line. You could have died in battle many times fighting for the nation of Israel. You have shed your own blood for us. You have worked hard to assemble some some peace in the country. You've worked hard to get some wealth to the country. It would have been very easy for someone to look and say, David, you have some credit. You've worked hard. You've done some of this, but this isn't David's heart. His heart is the opposite of that. He says, all of it, the material, the immaterial, it comes from God. I give him credit. I give him praise from that. David is attesting, I take no credit, God. You've enabled all of this. And then he says in verses 13 and 14, two verses that are so powerful and so potent for you and for me. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and we praise thy glorious name. Verse number 14, but who am I? And what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. You get that perspective? David is saying in verse 14, God, I don't even feel worthy that I'm able to be generous. I feel blessed that I can go bless someone else. I feel blessed that I can give my assets away. I don't even feel, this is, this is what he says, who am I and what is my people? Who are we that we should be able to offer so willingly? God, who am I that I, sh- that I should be able to be generous? Who am I that I should be able to share? Who am I that I should be able to, to give? I don't even feel worthy of this. And then he says, all things come of thee. And then the last statement is, of thine own have we given thee. What's he saying? He's saying, God, I just gave you back your own stuff. It wasn't mine. God, you blessed us, and you gave to us, and you gave to me, but really that that wasn't mine to begin with. All I did was I gave back your own stuff. It was on loan to me, and I just repaid it. You trusted me with wealth. You gave me the $14 and I'm just giving it back to you, and I understand the stewardship principle that what is mine wasn't really mine to begin with. It all belonged to you, and if you were to take this passage of Scripture and reduce it down to its minimum complexity and apply it to your life, here is what he's saying. Here's what this would mean for you. Your money and your time and your health and your assets, all of that isn't really yours. It's his. All of that belongs to him. Now, this is the opposite of the heartbeat of the rich young ruler that Jesus faced in Matthew. Remember that guy? The guy who had kept all the law and he had done A, B, and C, and I was a good little boy, and I I did everything right, but he had a lot of wealth. And oftentimes, if you obey God's principles, you will fall into wealth. He'll give it to you. But he had a lot of wealth, and he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to get eternal life. I want to have the kingdom of heaven. What should I do? And Jesus knows this man's heart. He knows where his trust has migrated to, and he puts his finger right on it. And he says, you know what? You, You have been a good little boy, but you should take all that you have, give it away to the poor. 
And the Bible says that rich young man, he went away sorrowful because he had great wealth. Jesus knew where his heart was. He knew where his trust was. It wasn't in the law. It wasn't in the Lord. It was in his money. And he says, I want to try to help you wade through that problem. And the rich young man refused to. Now that's the opposite of David. David says, all that I have, it's from God and it's yours anyway, God. The rich young ruler says, I have this, Uh uh-uh, ain't giving it away. I want to keep it for myself. And the stewardship principle teaches us simply everything that we are and have is a gift from God. This is what Paul tells the Corinthians. He tells them that all that we have is a gift from God, and because that is the case, we cannot glory and we cannot boast as if we've done it ourselves. That it squashes pride, it pushes us to humility to see that all that we have comes from the hand of the Lord. And this is, when you have this truth centered and lodged in your heart, then it's so easy to be generous. When you wrap your mind around what the Bible clearly teaches, that all of this is just on loan to me, and he possesses it all anyway, then it's very easy to be generous and share. Then it's very easy to care for that person in that need. It's very easy to tithe, and tithing is a a biblical principle. It's so easy to do that when you have your mind wrapped around, well, it all belongs to him. I mentioned last week that I grew up in a family that taught principles of biblical giving, and I was very grateful that my parents did that from an early age, that if I got $20 from grandma for my birthday, then my parents would teach me, hey, you should give a portion of that back to God. You should at least 10%, you know, give God 2% of that. And that was kind of baked into me from an early age, and I'm extremely thankful for that character formation that they put in me. And then even beyond that, they begin to teach at an early age in junior high and such, hey, you can give $5 a week to the missions program. You can do those things. As, as a young man, they did that. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. But maybe where this fell short, or maybe they taught me and I just missed it or forgot it, is, is, is this principle. I began to view my money this way, and I just had a, a little bit of it. I'd mow a lawn and get $30 or something, so small. But I began to view it this way. I got $10. So 10%, I'm going to give that to God. I'm going to give him his cut. There's one for you, God. I got my nine right here. Don't, I gave you your cut. Leave me alone. This is mine. I'm buying tennis shoes. I'm doing whatever I want. This is my money. Don't touch it. Mom and dad don't touch it. God don't touch it. I, you know, I gave you your portion, okay? So leave me alone. I began to view money that way, that all that was to finance, all that was to stewardship was just giving God his cut. And that's unhealthy. There, there should be principles of giving and tithing and being generous, certainly. But it's unhealthy to view money that way. You have to view all that you have. All, all, and I'm talking about material things and wealth and money and assets. I'm talking about even your marriage and your children. The immaterial things of your health and, and the blessing and the strength and, and what you've been given, all of that is from the hand of the Lord. And you should see that as the case and say, you know what? Okay, it's not mine to begin with. It's his. I'm just managing it. I'm just stewarding it. Now, why people resist this simple truth is because it scares us and it threatens us. Some people think this. Well, no, I think it is my money. I worked hard for that. Like, I put in a lot of time. That overtime came with a sacrifice. And I've tried to assemble and I've tried to steward and I've tried to plan and I've tried to do this. I've worked really hard I'm going to take some credit. It is mine. Other people are threatened in this way. 
they're, they're fearful. What if, what if I attest to that fact? So first, it's going to mean that you relinquish and that the pride's gone. You can't have any glory anymore. Second, it means for some people that it's just scary. If I do that and I begin to be generous, I don't know how the bills are going to get paid. I mean, I look at it on paper. I know what I've committed myself to. I know the house and the car loan and the electric bill. And maybe I could shave some off there, but I just don't know how it's going to work. I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet. And, it, and it's threatening and it's scary that I don't know how I'm on a fixed income. How would this work out? Other people fear the domino effect. Okay, Pastor Mark, I got, you're going to get me to, uh, you, you know, I'll admit, okay, that's true. And then you're going to spring something else on me. So that means that you have to give God your whole life and everything that you have. That means that you can never take a vacation. You have to go spend all your vacation money in Haitian villages ministering to little kids. You know, I know, I know what's behind that door. I'm going to say, okay, and then you're going to make me do something else. So we have these, these thoughts that wander through our minds and our hearts, and we have this, this natural bent in resistance to, want, to wanting to resist that, to resist the simple biblical truth that all that we have and all that we've been given isn't really ours. It's his. And part of this is because we fear what will happen. We are programmed from an early age that if we hear the words, it's mine, that means it's being taken from us. Aren't we? We're in the nursery. One, two, we're at home with a little brother or a big sister. And they say those words, it's mine. That's code for, you better give me that or I'm going to smash you over the head. You no longer get that. Ha, ha, ha. It's now mine, right? So we have this natural bent that if we hear the words, it's mine, it's not really yours. I have to say it's somebody else's. Now what that means is I'm not going to be able to hold on to it. I have a white knuckle grip on this, and I'm going to have to relinquish that. I'm going to have to let go of that. But it, it fails to really consider who God is. And the thought of God telling you through his word that all that you have and all that you are is his should not be a threatening thought because you should understand that our heavenly father is a giver and not a taker. That God in heaven is gracious and merciful and he wants to give and he wants to bless and this is for your own benefit to help your heart be properly adjusted and in line with him. And it should not be a fear of, well, God's just going to take it all from me then. I now have to take a vow of poverty and not have any wealth or any assets to my name. Now I have to, you know, completely drain the 401k. Now I have to get rid of the bank account. Now I have to take my Steelers memorabilia and I have to sell it on Craigslist and, and give it to the missions program. Right? We have thoughts like that. I, I like my Big Ben signature, you know, helmet. I want to hang on to that. And we fear that God's going to take it all. But that's not who God is. God is a giver. And shouldn't we have learned that through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Should not we have learned that God came in flesh and gave his own life for us so that he could give to us eternal life? God wants to bless you. God wants to, to help you. Your palms should not be sweaty. Your heart rate should not be elevated at the thought that God says to you, this is all mine. It's on loan to you. You're just to steward it and you're to manage it for my glory. You should not be nervous at that point in time. You, we see all through the Bible, God is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's not Ebenezer Scrooge. 
He's not a miser over there counting his pennies and wanting to get his pound of flesh from you. What does the Bible tell us in John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What does Jesus teach us about the Father in Matthew 7? Jesus says, look, if you as humans being evil, sin in your heart, if you're evil and you know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven good give the, good Give good things to them to ask him. Jesus says, look, you're, you're a parent. Like you got issues and you got sin and you got problems. But you as a parent, you as a grandparent, you know what it's like to want to bless your kids. You know what it's like to want to spoil them, to want to put a smile on their face, to see them open the Christmas present. You get that. He says, how much more will your heavenly Father, where there is no evil, where there is perfection, how much more will he want to give to you? Will he want to bless you? This is what James 1.17 tells us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, and there's no variableness, no shadow of turning with him. God ain't changing on that. That all of it comes from God, and God is a giver. So when we say, and when the Bible says that it's really not yours and it's God. It's just on loan to you. That's not God acting like a petulant little child wanting to rip it all away from you. That is God wanting to help you trust in him and to do life his way, do money his way, and for your heart and your hope to be attached to him. He's trying to move your trust. He's trying to move your hope back to himself. And he's a loving heavenly father who wants to give. Isn't that what we, we launched from 1 Timothy 6? Isn't that what it teaches us? That we don't trust in our uncertain riches because they do make themselves wings and fly away, but we trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. He wants to give. He wants it to be enjoyed. He wants there to be a heart of gratitude. So what do we do? What do we do with that truth, the stewardship principle, that everything that's yours isn't really yours? Well, here's what you do. You trust God with everything. You take everything that you have, that you are, that he's given, and you trust him with it. I didn't say you necessarily give it away tomorrow, but you trust him with it. And you say, God, you know what? You have full access to my life, my time, my career path, my checkbook, the nest egg, all of it. You have access to it. God, I'm not putting, I'm not quarantining off a section of my life or a section of my heart. I'm allowing you free access and free roam that you have given all to me. So in turn, I'm going to trust you. And if you tell me to do something with it, I'll respond. I'll be generous. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to give you access. And this is the bottom line. God doesn't really want your money. He wants you. He wants more than your money. He, he wants you, and he's deserving of you. He's actually, the Bible teaches that through Jesus Christ and his shed blood, that if you're a Christian, that you have been bought with his blood, you've actually been purchased, and if you give yourself to the Lord first, then all other giving is reasonable and is easy. This is what Romans 12 tells us, that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice unto God, and that's our reasonable service. This truth is meant to get all of you. It's meant to help you see that it's all from God, and you trust him with it all, and that God wants you, and he knows he doesn't have you unless he has your money along with you. 
Because he knows how we are. He knows how I am. He knows how quickly we put our hooks in that stuff and we say, okay, God, here's your cut, all mine. He knows it. And he wants you, the Bible wants you. I want you and I want to myself attest and remind myself often of this truth. All that I have, all that is mine, isn't really mine. It's on loan from God. And I want to be able to say, as David said, I want you to be able to say, as David said, who am I? that I should be so blessed that I could actually give generously to you. God, all I'm doing is giving back what's already yours in the first place. This truth is meant to attack your heart and help you to see all of your energy, all of your time, all of your money, all of your assets, all of it is God's. And you trust him with it. You do your best to steward it in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You do your best to manage it with the kingdom of heaven in mind and say to him, As David said, Lord, I'm blessed to be able to bless somebody else. Lord, all I'm doing is giving back what you've given to me. You say what Paul said to Timothy. God, I trust in you, the living God, and I understand that it's you that's given to me richly all things to enjoy. I understand it's all from your your hand. Life is a gift. This morning, you woke up, your heart was beating, Your brain was working. You could have had an aneurysm this morning. You could have passed away this morning. Two of our church members this week, both of their parents passed away extremely unexpectedly in bizarre ways this week. That could have happened to you. You could have fallen and broken your neck. But you didn't. And you understand that all that I have, all that's been given to me, my life, my family, my money, my time, all of it is a gift from God. And as such, God, thank you for putting it on loan to me. I want to steward it well. If you can center on that truth, all other giving, money and outside of money, all of it is easy and natural because you understand it's not really mine, it's his.